We're in Mark chapter 1. Yeah, new sermon series. We're starting the gospel of Mark today. I'm going to air some things out with you, okay? We're going to get a little nasty today. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the breath of the Spirit given to us. We ask in the name of the Lord that over the next several months as we study this gospel, that you would shape us into the image of Jesus. Lord, we're asking for the power of the Spirit on our lives, for healing. We're asking for souls to come and know Jesus for the harvest. We're asking for demonic spirits to be driven out. We want all of the kingdom. We bless your holy name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to turn to the gospel of Mark. We are going to lean into for the next several months, the life and the ministry of Jesus. Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. Um, it's rushed. It feels rushed. It's not any less thematic or written with intentionality than the others, but it is, it is quick. Church history teaches us that the gospel of Mark was given by Peter that John Mark was working as Peter's secretary. And in that sense, and church history has always taught that from a, from a very early date. In that sense, we're reading Peter's account. It's written around 60 AD. It is most likely, scholars pretty well agree, that this gospel was the earliest gospel written. And that we're talking 60 AD. We're getting close to Peter's martyrdom. That, that as Jesus tarried and the apostles are beginning to be martyred, uh, that that... Peter in particular goes, we might should write this down, um, that Jesus might tarry. He might not come back before we all lose our heads. We probably should record this. And so the gospel in that sense, it, it revolves around Peter's confession where Jesus asked, uh, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ and the son of God. That's in Mark chapter eight twenty nine. And so from one to Mark eight twenty nine, the disciples are really um, they're uncovering what scholars will call the messianic secret. They're, in other words, they're walking with Jesus. They're watching him heal the sick. They're watching him drive out demons, perform signs. And they're, they're beginning to learn that he is not only Messiah, but God. They're, they're kind of uncovering this mystery of who, who are you? It's kind of the first half of the gospel asks that question. And the moment, the very moment that they say, you're Messiah, the son of God. Jesus begins to talk to them about his death. And so they get this revelation that this is God in the flesh, performing great signs and wonders, healing the sick. And then immediately he starts to say, and by the way, I'm going to be crucified. And that jogs their brains with a whole nother mystery that they'll have to unravel. Now, again, this gospel is the most likely the most early, uh, the earliest gospel. And it feels rushed. If we... Except the perspective that John Mark is the same person who wrote this gospel, which we should. I don't think there's any reason to try to, sometimes people will try to paint there's two Marks. I don't, I don't think there's any reason to paint that. I think John Mark wrote this gospel. Then we stumble again into this idea of John Mark's own redemptive narrative. Okay, so if you remember when, when, when Barnabas and Paul were sent on their first missionary journey, remember the spirit of the Lord says, set them apart for the work which I have for them. They took with them Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, who was a young man. 
Now, you remember the story, like, very early on into their first missionary journey. We know from Paul's own testimony that, like, they're getting beat up. They're going hungry. They're traveling hundreds of miles on foot. I have a scooter or something. You know what I'm saying? But on foot, and about halfway through the journey, John Mark quits. Now, we're not told why he quit, but we could speculate. He could have gotten sick and maybe a cold and... Paul's probably going, we're all sick, buddy. Keep walking. He could have got homesick, wants to see mom, or maybe he's just feeling a little bit selfish. I'm done. I'm done with this. Either way, John Mark quit. And the next go around, when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready again to uh, to go and kind of do their second missionary journey, they're going to revisit some of the churches that they planted. And Barnabas says, let's go get John Mark and get John Mark to go with us. And Paul says, no way. No way am I taking your sellout cousin again. He can stay back. And Paul and Barnabas get in such a fight about this. This is where we see these two friends, close friends, separate. Um, because Barnabas's name means encourager. He's just not one to quit on people. He's just not. Paul, on the other hand, is like, this is hard work. No sissies allowed. Um, and that's a big, that's a big deal for John Mark. That, John Mark experiences what we would call in our day church hurt, right? Where the apostle Paul told him that he wasn't allowed to do it. And, and many in our day would deconstruct and, and get on the internet. And I'm just, I'm, I'm going to air out some grievances today. So just get ready for this. They get on the internet and cry about it for, for six months and, and stop following Jesus because someone offended them in the church. Um, but what we find in John Mark is he got his butt back up. And at the end of Paul's life, the very end of Paul's life, he says, hey, could you send me John Mark? Because he's very useful to me. Um, and so Paul eats his own words because John Mark gets his butt up. He keeps serving Jesus. And Paul's out doing his missionary thing. And while Paul's out doing the great missionary work, by the way, John Mark's serving Peter, who happens to be the head apostle. And Peter and Paul are both doing their work. They're both strong in the word. They're the strongest evangelists at this season. He's rejected by Paul. That's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll work with Peter. And now what we find as we uncover the first gospel written, that it comes from a man who quit. The first gospel given to us, this powerful testimony of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the one that will begin to shape. It's Actually, if you want to be real, John Mark invented a genre called gospel, comes from the life of a man who didn't quit. And so, you could say to me, Christianity is about second chances. And in a way it is. In a way, this is a second chance redemption story. I would say to you further, and again, I've got some emotions today, so I'm just going to just deal with it. It's your fault, okay? Um, my problems are your problems. It's the way this works. Um, you could say Christianity is about second chances. I would say Christianity is about continued repentance. Christianity is, is a second chance, but Christianity is about testimony. It's, it's about real freedom in Christ. And in our day, we've so embraced this idea, this lackadaisical idea that that everyone is really living a, a second life. We're all really bound in sin. And, and why don't we just go on and keep sinning and then out of the other side of our mouth profess Jesus. And I want to tell you that Christianity is about life change that works. It's about getting your heart right with Christ 
and living with a heart right with Christ for the rest of your life. So John Mark's not just a story of second chances. He's a story of repentance that works. And from there, we stumble into the introduction of John Mark's gospel, where we're really going to read today about John the Baptist and his great message of repentance. John the Baptist would say, bear fruit by keeping with repentance. In other words, what he was saying was, when you get in the waters and you give your life and you confess your sin, when you come out of the water, live as if that repentance actually mattered. Stop. Stop. With your confessing your sin and your kind of half-hearted sorrow and then going back and laying in your filth again. The Spirit of God empowers us. The Spirit of God graces us to change, to live new. And I want to say to you, I, I believe with all my heart that God has called us to be a people, called us to be a people of, of, of remnant hearts, a remnant church. And we cannot be a remnant church without real repentance. We can't have the gospel of Christ without real repentance. Now let me read to you our text, and we're going to stumble into John the Baptist's ministry. We're in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice the gospel, again, begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is shaping a new genre. The word gospel wasn't unique. It wasn't, um, it wasn't like he made up vocabulary. Uh, but this is the first time that the word gospel is really used in a religious context. In the Roman world, the word gospel, we, we always talk about the word meaning good news, which it, which it does. But the word gospel in the Roman world was, uh, would be like when a new emperor was born and, and the new emperor would be born and, and they would announce it to all of the Roman empire. And this announcing was declaring that there was a new age, right? A, a new, new, a new dynasty that was being birthed, a new ruler coming to establish his, his kingdom. And so when, when Mark, again, is the first, going to be the first to, in writing form, turn and use this word. He, it, it, there's very likely a sense in which he's declaring, Hey, there's a new age. There's one who is born, who is bringing a new dynasty. Now, many who oppose Christianity will say that Mark's, uh, they'll say that the only gospel that claims Jesus Christ is deity or is God, the only gospel that makes that claim is the gospel of John, which is the last gospel written. Therefore, we shouldn't take that into account. Um, and I just want to say to you that is, that's incredibly biblically illiterate. He's calling him here the son of God. Jesus is constantly like being stoned for blasphemy, trying to stone him for blasphemy. And here, John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord, who in Isaiah's text was God. 
And so we're finding in the first gospel, in the first paragraph, this idea that Jesus is deity. In Mark's introduction here, he doesn't give us genealogy. Matthew's going to give us genealogy. Luke's going to give us genealogy. John's going to give us kind of heavenly genealogy, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So John's going to give us this heavenly perspective of Jesus' um, originlessness, that he has no beginning. Mark doesn't give us genealogy. Again, Mark's rushed. Mark's entire gospel feels like this. The, the common word or phrase in Mark's gospel is going to be the phrase immediately. <laughs> immediately, immediately. Um, and so, if you will, Mark's just going to get down to business. And he doesn't tell us about John's conception. Think of um, John the Baptist's kind of miraculous conception as Elizabeth in her old age conceives. He doesn't tell us about Mary's conception. He just takes us straight to the wilderness. Straight to the, the call of John the Baptist to repent. To confess your sins, get in the waters of baptism, and repent. In Mark's introduction, he's going to show us some prophetic text that declare that before Messiah, there would be a forerunner. The ministry of the forerunner. He tells us that, he, he, he tells us that he's quoting Isaiah when he says, prepare the way of the Lord. But what he's actually doing is, um, something we see in early, or New Testament literature. We see this in, uh, the kind of intertestamental period. He's quoting several different Old Testament passages. He's winding them all in together as one phrase to try to show you how they interact with one another. So first he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah says, there's one coming who will cry in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now again, but he's using an interpretive principle. And so he's he's adding in this phrase from Exodus 23.20, where God tells um, Moses that he'll send an angel before Israel into Canaan. So Exodus 23, 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. So here we get this in Exodus, there's going to be this angelic figure who goes before Israel and leads them in, into the promise. Catch kind of the, the imagery there of John the Baptist being a figure who leads us into the promise, goes before us. He's going to use Micah 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Again, listen to the language. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before who? Before me. Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we find that God sends John the Baptist to fulfill these prophetic texts. What is he to do? He's to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the heart of Israel. But where do we find him? In the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? There's so much biblical imagery here, it makes me want to pull my hair out. Okay, so let me just pass by it quickly, because I don't have the time. John, There are places to baptize in Jerusalem. Okay, John could do what he wants to do in Jerusalem. But the prophecy from the start 
was that he would be in the wild, crying out from the wilderness. So we find John the Baptist calling all of Israel to leave Jerusalem, leave Bethlehem, go outside the city gates, leave your jobs, leave your common lives, and come out to the wilderness. Now, the imagery is obviously of Israel leaving Egypt, leaving the slavery of Egypt, and come meet with me in the place of the burning bush. Come meet with me in the place of my holy mountain. Come get alone with me in solitude. Come back to the secret place. Now, there's so much prophetic text here that, that paints these kind of foreshadowing pictures. Let me just show you a few that will help you kind of get my point. Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, listen to this. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, a land not sown. So God says to the prophet Jeremiah to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, how you loved me as a bride. You followed me anywhere into the wilderness, a land not sown. In the wilderness, you depended on me. We were alone there. And I spoke to you and led you and fed you. And you loved me with your whole heart in the wilderness. But now you're tangled up in your daily affairs. Now you go about your business. And you've forgotten the intimacy that we once had. Watch Hosea chapter 2 verse 14 through 15. Therefore, behold, this is, remember, get the, get the context of Hosea in your head quickly. What does Hosea do, right? He marries a prostitute. And his faithfulness to the prostitute is supposed to show the way in which God loves us even in our wickedness, loves Israel even in her mess. Therefore, Hosea 2, 14 through 15. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. And I'll speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. So before Jesus comes with the message of the kingdom, with healing the sick and driving out demons and great miraculous power, before the day of peace and joy and Messiah, God calls Israel to come out of the city Get alone with me in the wilderness again and remember my faithfulness to you and your love for me. Remember your devotion. With that context, we realize that repentance here, when John the Baptist begins his ministry of repentance, it's incredible to think that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There is a shift in prophetic ministry after the life of John the Baptist. There's no doubt. But John the Baptist, in all of his success and fruitfulness, he has no miraculous power that we know of. He's not performing signs and wonders. He's called Elijah, the Elijah to come. And for a reason we'll talk about in a bit. But he's not like Elijah. Elijah calls fire from heaven. John the Baptist is singular in his mission. Get alone with God in the wilderness. Repent of your wickedness. Because you really want to turn back to intimacy and loving your first love again. But see, in John's mind, repentance is not just this uh, this kind of laying out on paper, these acts are wicked and these acts are holy, therefore we're going to live holy because we don't want to, you know, fall in the legalistic system. 
to John the Baptist, to live holy is to love God with all your being. He's not calling you to legalism. He's calling you to intimacy with God and God alone. He's calling you to put down your stinking idols. To stop living as if your fleshly desires are all there is to life. Put down your alcoholism. Put down your sexual addictions. Put down your selfishness. Leave them in the waters of baptism. Okay, now let's throw away the notes here for a second and just talk. The beginning of the gospel is baptism. It's an initiation rite. It's one of the sacraments that we need to take seriously. And, and some scholars will kind of speculate that John the Baptist is using Jewish purification rites to kind of invent this idea of baptism. I don't think it's there. I don't think it's there. I think John the Baptist is coming with a, with a new movement where he's saying, come out in the wilderness, love God with all your heart again, repent, confess your sin, we're going to dip your butt in the water, and when you come out, this is going to be imagery that the Spirit has made you clean, new. And what we've done in our day, golly, what we've done in our day is we've tried to have the gospel without repentance. We've tried to have the healing and the power and the life without repentance, confession, and real baptism. And we rush to the waters just to go through the imagery. But if you go through the imagery in the water and your heart was never circumcised, was never cut, if you were never in your heart saying, I want to return to the God of the wilderness. If all you were doing was going through the motions in hopes of feeling better about yourself with a message of positivity without dying in the water, then we are not remnant people and we don't know the gospel. He preaches repentance and forgiveness of sins. The message is turn back to a life of devotion and be cleansed. Repentance and forgiveness must go hand in hand. This is, this is doctrine 101. I thought this morning, I wish Don Forshee was still here because he would scream at you for me right now. <laughs> this, is, this is doctrine 101. Repentance and forgiveness go hand in hand. When we come to the cross, you have to come willing to bow, put your face in the dirt, kiss the feet of the Messiah. You don't come to Jesus for forgiveness while you cling to your idols. And, and y'all forgive me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be kind here. This is kind for me, just so you know. Um, I, I say this with all the kindness in my heart. We do not have real Christianity if we don't have real repentance. We don't. We have some feel-good thing. Maybe have great community. Some of you guys can cook. Cool. <laughs> but if Jesus is not Lord, if we haven't denied our flesh and crucified the old life and committed ourselves to fully love God. Now, let me just, let me just yak for a second. The, the kind of idea in modern Western Christianity is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God come to Jesus and have forgiveness and, and then live the rest of your life bound by sin. But if you need forgiveness, you can come again. And of course you can come again for forgiveness. It's not a question. But that's not the gospel message. 
I think I picked on Wesley recently. Let me redeem him for a minute here. Wesley, in his, in his teaching on what, what's called Christian perfection, um, a lot of people have a real issue with Wesley, primarily because they don't understand what Wesley was saying. John Wesley never taught that Christians could have angelic perfection or Adam before the fall perfection. He wasn't saying that there's a place in the Christian life where you could live totally sinless and you could return to kind of the, the pre-fall state and you'd never struggle again. He wasn't saying that. What John Wesley was saying was that when Jesus said that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength, he meant that that is a true possibility. Wesley was, Wesley was saying when, 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 he's, when he used the word perfection, he wasn't saying perfection in the sense that like you would never have a selfish thought again or that you would never be in, you know, every step you would take would be in perfect obedience to God. He wasn't saying that. He was just saying that there is a place in the Christian life where your heart really becomes fully devoted to God. And, and you can't just live in sexual immorality because you want to, because your heart is caught by Jesus alone. And, 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 and all of the, that, so, so Wesley would, would differentiate between, um, what he would call like an, like an external sin and the, the internal dealings with bitterness that we all wrestle with. And he was trying to say that in sanctification, you can come to the place where, where your sexual desires are totally crucified before Jesus. So I would say in modern culture, I think Wesley would say, you can get free from pornography, dude. Stop living like everyone's addicted to pornography and there's no such thing as purity because we all have flesh. There is freedom in Christ. And let me just say on behalf of your wife, turn it off, perv. It's a disgrace to the gospel to keep pretending like freedom isn't achievable. You know why you can't get to the place of freedom? Because you haven't confessed your sins and bore your heart before the people of God. We've, we've got community here that's beautiful. And there are uh, men and women alike. If you're struggling, man, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at you. I'm just saying that there is a way to get out. And, and Drew's here. Brother Drew that leads, Drew and Mike lead our men's ministry. If you're dealing with pornography, pull Drew aside at some point. I promise you. I promise you Drew will walk with you. Pastor Brad will walk with you. I will walk with you. And there's going to be no stones thrown at you. If you lay in that sin and roll around in it, that's on you, man. That's on you. And on behalf of your family, I'm begging you, stop it. You say, don't call me. I am calling you out, man. I am. We got to quit pretending. All we have in the Western church is this kind of facade. And we love to sing, and by God, I love to sing. But our worship is frail if we sing the songs on Sunday and even shout, but we leave this room and live in disobedience. You cannot sing the songs and then spit in his face tomorrow and pretend like you're a Christian man. Come on, love him. I'm begging you, love him. Love him with your whole heart. Pray, cry. Quickly, I'll give you the, the, the rest of the implications of the text. He obviously tells us about John's dress and his diet because he's trying to show us that John the Baptist is emulating I, uh, Elijah. 
Um, Second Kings 1, 7 through 8. Ahaziah, the, the king, he asked his servants to go and to, to, to ask the prophets of Baal whether or not he's going to recover from a sickness. And as his servants go to try to find some prophets of Baal, they run into Elijah. And Elijah essentially says, um, is there not a God in Israel? Why are you running to prophets of Baal? And when they come back to the king and tell him what Elijah says, the king asks the servants, what did he look like? The servants respond to 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8. What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, oh, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So when John the Baptist comes out with camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, everyone knew what he was saying. Now, I think it's twofold. The, the imagery of, of Elijah is twofold. One in that Elijah, what is Elijah known for? If I said, if I asked you, what is Elijah stir in your mind probably say like killing 800 prophets a Baal, like calling fire down from heaven remember elijah's biggest probably moment of his life is where he looks at israel and he says stop limping between two gods why don't you get the prophets of Baal to come the karma will meet we'll call fire down from heaven and then you can choose who you're going to serve now what is elijah's ministry it's obviously marked with power but he's saying to israel You have to be devoted to God alone. Then on the tail of Elijah comes Elisha. And Elisha's ministry is a ministry of power. And Elisha's ministry is, obviously you guys know this, double the miracles of Elijah. And so on one hand, John the Baptist is saying to Israel, just like Elijah, you can't stop limping between two gods. Choose who you're going to serve. On the second hand, John the Baptist is Elijah saying, I am preparing your hearts in repentance to receive the ministry of power that's coming. In which case, of course, John says, the one coming after me, I baptize you in water, he'll baptize you in the spirit. We obviously see this in Acts chapter 2, spirit baptism. His sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. We know from even Jesus washing the disciples' feet that the, the servant of the house, it was their job to get down on their feet take the shoes off the master and wash their feet. Obviously, they're, again, streets are dust. There's animal feces all in the streets, and they're wearing sandals, so their feet are dry and gross. So the servant would wash the feet. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to take his sandals off and scrub the cow manure from his feet. He is that holy and wonderful. 